0: Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Alistair Begg, encouraging Christians to live countercultural lives by explaining one of Jesus'
1: famous sermons. The real danger in it is that we see this as just a sort of form of moralism. If you'll do this, then maybe Jesus will let you into his kingdom, as opposed to what is actually being conveyed by Jesus. Here are the evidences, here are the marks of kingdom living, here is the impact that comes when an individual or a community um, bow their knee to me and trust entirely in who I am and what I've done, that the, that the outflow is from there. Alistair Beg next.
0: In his new book, The Christian Manifesto, Ohio pastor and frequent Pilgrim radio speaker Alistair Begg navigates us through a challenging portion of Luke's gospel in which Jesus gives instruction on many things, including forgiveness, integrity, obedience, and blessedness that really turns the world's value system upside down. Veteran broadcaster Bob Lapine sat down with Alistair to get the details. Here we are in the middle
2: of conversations about things like Christian nationalism, and Alistair Begg writes a book called The Christian Manifesto. You want to explain yourself here?
1: Yeah, uh, I think that um, the title we thought about for those very reasons and um, decided that the risk was worth the potential benefit, just in the sense that, you know, people are used to saying, setting out their statements regarding their company policy or their school agenda or whatever it might be. And so what we're really seeing in this is that if you listen to the king talk about his kingdom, uh, what are the principles and values that are there? And so Jesus um, In a couple of places, we might say the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain actually sets out these principles. So that's what it's about. But it's not, I think, you know, the provocative aspect of it is hopefully will make people say, well, wait a minute, what do you mean a manifesto? And Mm then they'll read it rather than, oh dear, I don't want to hear a manifesto. And then they'll (laughs) neglect it. Time will tell. (laughs) You mentioned both the Sermon on the Mount and the
2: Sermon on the Plain. There's overlap between what we see in Matthew's Gospel and what's in Luke's Gospel. This this is really the heart of what Jesus is telling his disciples that life is supposed to be all about, right?
1: Yes, I think it's pretty clear that there are two separate occasions for sure, uh, but that the overlap between the material— is exactly what we would expect when two of Jesus' followers were giving to their readers in their gospel the sort of highlights of the overarching teaching of the king. And uh, a bit like in newspaper articles, somebody highlights one piece, but when you read both of them, you realize that they are fitting in with one another. Yeah. And and as we think about this, I, I'm, I'm thinking back to the first
2: sermon i ever preached when i was in my 20s which was on the beatitudes and i i have to tell you i'm embarrassed to go back and listen to it because i was reading commentaries that were telling me that this was about the the future about the millennial kingdom that these principles would be lived in the future and maybe it wasn't for today um i i don't think that's the case i think we're supposed to read the sermon on the plane and apply it in our day don't you think
1: I think for sure we can all be grateful for the fact that Martin Lloyd-Jones eventually you know, gave to us uh, the Beatitudes. And of course, uh, the work that uh, John Stott did in um, the countercultural essence of Christian living, I found very helpful as a young man. And um, yeah, no, I think it's, it's vitally important. I think the other side, of course, is that The real danger in it is that we see this as just a sort of form of moralism. If you'll do this, then maybe Jesus will let you into his kingdom. As opposed to what is actually being conveyed by Jesus, here are the evidences, here are the marks of kingdom living. Here is the impact that comes when an individual or a community, um, bow their knee to me and trust entirely in who I am and what I've done, that the, that the outflow is from there. So that's and, working from in to out, and I think it's easy for any of us to to read Luke
2: chapter six and go, wait a second, I can't do this. I mean, love my enemies and and think different. This this is unnatural and and feels impossible. And I think that's part of the point, isn't it? That Jesus is
1: trying to say, you can't do this. Well, yes, I I think. Well, I think, you know, it's interesting that you phrase it in that way because part of the problem is that uh, the sort of moral framework of Christianity with a big C is such that people do read this and say, oh, yes, I definitely can do this. <laughs> and uh, they might not make a very good job of it, but they're trying their best uh, to be these people. And And I think that when we read the, the material, Carefully realize exactly what you're saying, that Jesus is pointing out to us that this is an impossibility apart from the the work of grace within our lives. Mm -hmm. And we also need to keep in mind, and and you point this out beautifully in the
2: book, that this is not what we do to enter into the kingdom. This is what we do because we are citizens of the kingdom.
1: Yes, And, and so to read it, I must be honest, Bob. I, you know, I scan read this book in preparation for this conversation, and I was immediately thinking of the passage where Paul says, "I don't box in the air." You know, I don't, I don't shadow box, but I, I beat my body. And to read this book um, is to give yourself a pretty good punch on the nose, because. Immediately we want to jump to the conclusion that, oh yes, it's very clear that these are the evidences of uh, of real kingdom living, and yet we're confronted by the fact that, you know, if we look on the last week, we haven't just been exemplary um, people in relationship to these things, and so the wonderful thing about it is that it casts us back again and again on the Lord, but not to use that as an excuse for the potential disobedience of our own hearts forgiveness is one of the key themes in the
2: sermon on the plane and you and i both as we talk to people in pastoral ministry find a lot of people struggling with this issue of forgiveness in part i think because they don't rightly understand what it means to forgive someone forgiveness though is
1: is a command it's not an option for a christian is it Right. The way in which it is framed, of course, is that our our merciful response to people, reaction to people, is on account of the, the groundswell reality of realizing how merciful God has been to us. Yeah. And, you know, when we say the Lord's Prayer, you know, forgive us our debts as, as we forgive our debtors. And, you know, it's only as I realize the immensity of God's forgiveness towards me that I realize that that I don't really have an option here um, in terms of forgiveness. It doesn't mean that to forgive a person doesn't mean that we condone what they've done or that we are just simply saying it doesn't matter. No, we don't condone it and it does matter. If it didn't matter, there's no, if it wasn't wrong, there would be no need for forgiveness. But to forgive in that way is a supernatural thing. In the same way that that on the other side of the coin, to love in the way that Jesus calls us to love is also a supernatural reality.
2: As you're sitting with someone who is struggling with forgiveness, they've been profoundly hurt or scarred by someone, and they say, I just can't forgive
1: this person. What's your pastoral counsel to them in that moment? Well, funnily enough, I was with somebody just last week. They came through our building. They were traveling. And in casual conversation, um, we were just bantering things around. And then eventually the gentleman said to me, would it be okay if you and I just talked for a moment? And as we talked, he he told me that he's been harboring all of his life a sense of anger towards one of his parents. Hmm. He had reached the point, he said, where he has now been able to look on that parent with a sense of compassion. But he said, and then he burst into tears. This is a man in his 60s. He said, but I just can't say I forgive you. Can you help me to do that? And so I said, well, I'll try but that is the reality of it. And and it it's not immediately helpful, I think, to say to somebody, Well, I, I'm not sure can't is right. I think perhaps won't is right, uh, because it is by an act of the will. Uh, sometimes our hearts need to catch up with our heads, um, need to catch up with our words. And uh, so I encouraged him and we prayed together. And uh he said, This has been a, a burden a uh, shared and a burdened halved. Hmm.
2: Let me ask you about Jesus' teaching about money and possessions, which is a part of what's in the Sermon on the Plain, which again seems countercultural to the consumerism and the materialism that is so prevalent in our own culture.
1: Yeah, it is such a challenge. I mean, that's that's what I say when I read through this again. You know, I don't, I don't know about you, Bob, but I don't re-listen to my own sermons. (laughs) I mean, Spurgeon said, keep your old sermons to weep over. And I can understand that. But as I, as I read this material again, I I was struck by, by the immensity of the challenge that the things that we lay store by, um, are not the things that Jesus lays store by. And we have, if you like, been tempted, at least in Western civilization to baptize into orthodoxy a sense of well-being a sense of uh, position and uh, a sense of being relatively settled but as i as I say in the book, you know in terms of being rich um you know most of us would fit in the scheme of the entire world in the 1% of those in the entire world. Therefore, it's not as if the I can sidestep it and say, well, I know a few people who are rich, they need to hear this. No, I, I need to hear this as well because the the temptation is to find our security in something other than God himself. And Jesus is saying there's no lasting joy that is found in that. And of course, we know that, But then it's so easy to slip back into that and to be um, confronted by the challenge of of the Manifesto of the King. He says, no, you've got it upside down if you go there. My world turns it upside down, and that's the challenge. Is is there anything that helps you
2: rethink your relationship with money and possessions? As you read the words of Jesus, how do you get free from the bondage that can come from materialism?
1: Well, I think, first of all, just being alerted to it is one thing, and not trying to sidestep the warning bell, saying, yeah, well, that's very good for someone, but it doesn't matter to me. First, first of all, being prepared to allow the thing to scan our own hearts. And then I think generosity with what we have is a tremendous help to recognizing that what we have was entrusted to us on loan and it's not ours to keep in any case. It's a real journey for me to discover that generosity with a provision that God has made is a, is a wonderfully, um, satisfying reality. And also it, it, when you do that, when you when you disburse what you have, then you have less left, and therefore you are left to trust God, I suppose, more, hmm. because you're saying, "I don't need this for my security; I need you as my security." Well, I'm thinking
2: again about the title, "The Christian Manifesto." I'm thinking, if if somehow our world was shaped by this teaching, what a glorious! reality that would be if we lived this way if we all
1: lived this way that's what god intends for us yeah exactly i mean you and i both are children of the 60s one way or another and you know woodstock whatever it was it was a genuine cry by that generation to discover what it meant to truly love. It was, as one journalist described it, the search for the nation's soul. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it came up short. Uh, The challenge of dealing with um, wars amongst the nations has been addressed by establishing the the United Nations. But anybody with half a brain realizes that whatever is going on there in Brussels or wherever it might be, It can't settle the the deep-seated animosities of people and the cries of the human heart. And so that is why the idea of, you know, one day this thing will be there in glorious technicolor. That's the picture in Revelation, that there will be this gathering of the people. But in the meantime, somehow or another, local churches have got to figure out a way to open up their hearts and open up their doors to let people come in and understand that in our vulnerabilities and in our brokenness, we are subjects of a king. He is a merciful king. He tells the truth. He doesn't dodge the issues. And he died in order that we might learn to die to ourselves as well. And it is in dying to ourselves. And instead of making apologies for uh, uh things that happened 250 years ago or 500 years ago which is you know which is fairly um it's kind of like very trendy you know that i could apologize for things i never did to people that i never met <laughs> forget that for the moment how about we just apologize for the things or ask for forgiveness for the things that we have done to the people that we have met mm-hmm. and and then and then Perhaps people will say, well, wait a minute, I think we ought to give this a look. It's not about this. It's not about that. It's about Jesus. It's about he's a king. Apparently, he uh, has decided that his followers will live in a certain way by the enabling of the Spirit. These people over there are apparently trying it. Why don't we go check it out?
2: You have, in recent months, been taking the Parkside congregation through Romans chapter 1, And Psalm 139 and Jude, uh, which which all point to how out of sync our culture is with God's word, God's expectations. It feels like the Sermon on the Plain in Luke chapter 6 is pointing us back inward and saying it's not just culture that is out of sync with God's demands, but our own lives are out of sync. And that's again why we need the gospel for forgiveness and for transformation.
1: Yeah, I, I think one of the salvations for me in, in trying to tackle Jude and being tackled by Jude is the fact that he doesn't name anybody. He doesn't call anybody out. I mean, he gives us an identikit picture of the characteristics of people that will cause trouble and, and chaos if they're allowed to uh, embed themselves. So there is there is, despite his very forceful approach— it's if you like a, a an iron fist in a kid glove, and there is something in that I think that uh, we need to be prepared to identify what he's calling us to see, while at the same time recognizing that every finger that points out has a number that point back towards us. Mm-hmm. And the Sermon on the Plain, uh, you know, we all know we all know the thing about the. Uh, the the plank and the twig you know mm-hmm. but but we're horrible at finding twigs in people's eyes and i think there's a sort of humorous uh, treatment of that in the book where uh, you know we have this idea that we have a a huge uh, beam that is projecting from our foreheads and we're Trying to talk to somebody about something that they have in their eye and they say, you know, could you back up a little bit, please? And I say, well, why do I need to back up? So we well, got that huge thing sticking out of your head. Oh, no, I don't. No, I don't. They say, yeah, you do. And, and yet we're masters at that. And churches are horrible for that. Yeah. You know, self-righteousness, uh, self-pity, self, self. And that's why we need to bow down before the king. That's why he gives us the sermon.
2: And, and I think, it's not unimportant for us to be looking and saying, this is what is wrong in our world, and this is how the gospel would fix that. But if we neglect, this is what is wrong in my own heart, and this is what needs to be addressed there, then we, we drift into the self-righteousness that you're talking about. I want to ask you about the last chapter in the book, because after all of the challenging teaching of the Sermon on the Plain, you conclude the book by talking about the heart of the king. Why is that so important as we work our
1: way through this material? Well, just in the same way that when we listen to somebody giving a talk, um, there is a person there there is there is a life there there's a that we we hear these words and we respond to them not simply because we can understand the syntax but because we sense something of the person at least at the at best. And so when we read the words of Jesus, we need to realize that it is these are Jesus words uh, he is the the Christ who has spoken clearly he is the the Christ who has compassion on people um, he's the Christ who gives up himself in order that uh, others might find in him the the longings of their hearts and I, that's why we finish in the way that we do so that we we don't get the creed as it were distanced from the compassionate heart of Christ himself. I think every pastor who preaches, every author who writes a book
2: like this, comes away thinking, I hope my readers or my listeners will think differently as a result of their interaction with this, will feel differently and will act differently. As you think about this book and your prayer for this book, what do you hope will be different? How do you hope people will be different after they have read uh, this book and they've meditated on this
1: sermon? Well, first of all, I, you know, I hope that I will be different. Um, the old song that we never sing, you know, it's not my brother, not my sister, but it's me, oh, Lord, standing in the need of prayer. I mean, that—that that is foundationally the case, Um, And so I hope that that would be multiplied. I hope that our church family, those who choose to uh, read this book, that it might have an impact among us because learning to say, I'm sorry, learning to say, please forgive me, learning to say, you know, I'm not at my best at the moment. Can you come alongside me? Learning to say, yes, I know that these people believe a very different agenda, that their lifestyle is orientated in another direction and learning to say, but I have no basis upon which I could argue that I myself would not be where they are, were it not for the amazing grace of God, were it not for his compassion towards me and in very specific areas this comes across i mean you and i know that we field questions all the time that go along the lines of uh, my grandson is about to be married to a transgender person and i don't know what to do about this and i'm calling to ask you to tell me what to do which mm. is a huge responsibility and in a conversation like that just a few days ago and uh, people may not like this answer but i asked the i asked the grandmother Does your grandson understand your uh, belief in Jesus? Yes. Does your grandson understand that your belief in Jesus makes it such that you can't countenance in any affirming way the choices that he has made in life? Yes. I said, well, then, okay, as long as he knows that, then I suggest that you do go to the ceremony, Mm. and I suggest that you buy them a gift, Oh, she said what? She was caught off guard. I said, Well here's the thing. Your your love for them may catch them off guard, but your absence will simply reinforce the fact that they said these people are what I always thought, judgmental, critical, unprepared mm. to countenance anything. And it is a fancy, it is a fine line, isn't it? It really yeah. is. And people need to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. But I think we're going to take that risk. We're going to have to take that risk a lot more if we want to build bridges into the hearts and lives of those who don't understand Jesus and, and don't understand that he is a king. John tells
2: us he was full of grace and truth, and we have to figure out how we can be full
1: of grace and truth at the same time, don't we? Yeah. Yeah, Full of our words should be full of grace and seasoned with salt. Yes. So easy to get that upside down. And when a pastor does, then that will take on uh, a role in a congregation as well and flavor it. And so, you know, let not many of you become teachers.
0: Ohio pastor and frequent Pilgrim Radio teacher Alistair Begg discussing his new book, The Christian Manifesto. The interviewer was Bob Lapine. Finally on His People Today, the Capitol Commission aims to pray for and minister to the legislators and staff of every state in the United States. Pilgrim Radio's Patrick Herman caught up with the representatives of the ministry with this special interview.
3: In studio today with Ron McMillan of the Capitol Commission in Carson City, Nevada, and the president of Capitol Commission for all 50 states, Dr. Rad Harbaugh. Thanks for being with us today on His People.
4: Amen. Great to be Amen. here.
3: Now, the main thing for your ministry is reaching America's legislative leaders with the good news of Jesus. Tell me how you do that. I think I saw it in prayer,
4: discipleship, Bible studies. Absolutely. Prayer, presence, and proclamation. Are the three key words? Prayer, obviously, with them, as God allows them to allow us to do that. Teaching people to pray for their leaders. We have a pray1tim2.org tool that is phenomenal, and uh, we encourage and thousands use that. But we also lead prayer uh, events and welcome people to the Capitol. And so, uh, presence is. What sets us apart? There are a lot of ministries that come into the Capitol. We'll spend uh, an hour. Pastors will rotate in. Those are all good things. But to have to build a trusted relationship that allows you to actually touch the hearts of people, you need to be there. Mm-hmm. And you need to be consistently there. And so our men are in the Capitals for days every week they're in session. So, Ron, you're the man in Nevada. I am now. You're, you're the
3: guy. And so, and I really love that I saw that you guys are there for not just the legislature, but the staff that works at the Capitol. Is that right?
5: Correct. Yeah. We uh, ministered anyone in the building. And you, as you know, in uh, Carson City, there's a whole Capitol complex there, which is at the Capitol, um, the legislative office building, and the Supreme Court. So uh, we make our way to each one of those buildings and uh, just minister to everyone that we can, to include the police agencies at each of those buildings.
3: You know, so many of us that live here in Nevada, we don't know our own legislators, but they, they're making the laws of the land for us. And yet you are there firsthand being able to, to talk with those people on a first name basis, probably at times.
5: Yes, sir. Uh, we came in late uh, to the session. As you know, the Nevada legislature is only in session every other year uh, from January to June. And by the time I was uh, commissioned as the minister to Nevada, our session had already been in session for a couple of months. So we just had a few short weeks in a session, uh, but we were able to make contact with a good number of our legislative staff, uh, the legislators themselves. And like I said, the police officers in the complex as well. And we had many opportunities to pray. Uh, And there are plenty of people seeking prayer in our legislative office buildings. They're under immense amount of pressure, and I think we often take that for granted.
3: What about Christians? Are you finding a lot of Christians there? I mean, tell us what the anchor is. How does it look?
5: So, like I said, I haven't talked to everyone yet, but I would say the percentage is pretty low for Christ followers in our legislative office building, that's legislators. Okay. Uh, I don't know about civilian staff. Uh, the number's probably a little bit higher, but... Um, you know what? That's why we're there. Yeah, that's
3: why you're there. <laughs> and as we were talking about before this interview, uh, you know, we cover California, Nevada, Wyoming, and Montana. But you say that there's a, a need for a representative in Montana and Wyoming, right?
4: Absolutely. We have them covered now. We have Wyoming covered with their Colorado State minister and then Montana. We have an affiliate ministry that uh, was planted there, but I believe he's leaving. So we would love to have people go to our website, www.capitalcom. That's capital with an o, com, org. have them go to that website and they can click on Wyoming, they can click on Montana, They can send us a note, and they, they can uh, connect with us about those two states. We are turning leaders to righteousness. Daniel 12.3 makes it clear those who turn people to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever. And so we are seeking to bring the light of God's word, biblical worldview, back into the hearts and minds of our legislators in the United States of America.
0: You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to today's guests, Ohio Pastor Alistair Begg and Ron McMillan and Dr. Brad Harbaugh of the Capital Commission Ministry. Go to capitalcom.org or Pilgrim Radio's Facebook page. We've shared some of their information on today's feed. Coming up on tomorrow's program, it's Lauren McAfee on the implications of the biblical truth that humans are made in the image of God.
3: To be created in the image of God. It doesn't mean that we are God, so of course, there's a level of humility there that we're not God, but there is some level of significance that we are created in His image, and that gives a level of uh, worth and dignity and value to every person that is intrinsic to who we are as a human being.
0: That's tomorrow at the same time right here on His People. Thanks for listening.